A leader's mindset is, I love you. I'm here for you. We're going to win together. How can I help you? I'm motivated to serve. When you can establish that love and serve clearly, people give you permission to lead them. Once you have permission to lead, you'll get so much more done than you would by trying to manage people. You really can't serve others without having a certain amount of humility as a leader. God gave us dominion over creation, not one another. Transformational leaders concentrate on having dominion over work, not people. When you approach leadership with humility, it's easier to see the value in others and to guide their developmental path around the areas in which they're strong. You learn about the people you lead, see them as a whole person in a whole job, and value how they're created and what they're capable of doing. You want to learn from your team members and give them opportunities to teach you. Some view humility in business as allowing yourself to be walked over. I view it as a continuum. On one side, you have the person who says, I know everything and can do it all myself. I'm the boss and you all report to me. I am entitled to have your respect. This person has unhealthy self-esteem. On the far opposite side, you have the person who says, I'm not worthy. I never do anything right. I don't want to try this again because I made mistakes the last time and failed. This person has unhealthy low self-esteem. Neither of these mindsets work for leadership. In the middle of this continuum, you have the transformational leader. This person flawlessly balances self-esteem and is a humble servant leader. They believe they are perfectly created to deliver value and serve others while moving their business forward. They know they have what it takes to win today and past experience will help them do the same in the future. Transformational leaders are always continuing to learn and develop themselves, not to move up in the business, but to serve others. This is Here We Grow, a show for growth-minded leaders looking for transformational impact, hosted by Marsha Barnes. True leadership comes from a mindset of helping others reach their potential rather than focusing on one's own gain. In this episode of Here We Grow, we speak to Jim Morris, who's exemplified the qualities of a servant leader as the vice chairman of Pacers Sports and Entertainment and the chairman of the Board of Governors for Riley Children's Foundation. In their conversation, Jim and Marsha discuss the transformational growth that is possible when leaders focus on helping others reach their full potential. So today we have my good friend Jim Morris stopping by to talk with us about connecting people and relationships and leadership and all the things that you're very wise about, Jim. Just kind of remind people, Jim is the current vice chair of the board at the Pacers Entertainment, right? That's correct. And then in your past, you worked with Dick Luger. You were his chief of staff. You ran the Lilly Foundation for several years. Sports Corps is kind of your creation. You were heavily involved in that as well. Worked with the UN on the World Hunger Program for several years. Today, you hang out with the Pacers all day. So, <laughs> big background. Yeah, well, I've been a lucky guy. Lots <laughs> of good opportunities have come my way. Yeah. And I've been fortunate to work with a good number of remarkable, really quite extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. And maybe I've been the glue that helped hold it together. Right. But <laughs> more often than not, the brilliance came from others. Yeah. I know that you originally are from Terre Haute, 
right? Yes. And you were raised by your mother? Yes. Is there something that your mother taught you that's been the big thing that you carried forward in your adult career? Well, I think more often than not, you learn by watching and listening and by example. Yeah. My mother, who was just the two of us for most of our lives growing up, she worked very hard. She was a lovely lady, uh, nice to everyone. She worked at Indiana State University in the yeah. registrar admissions office for most of her career. And I think always had that special interest or drive to be as helpful as she could be mm -hmm. to uh, young students who needed some help or needed a boost. Yeah. And I, I watched her be a very loving, caring, good person. Well, you have taken that forward a long way, Jim. <laughs> she must be very proud, yeah. Well, she passed away a good number of years ago. And I think the older you get, you maybe spend more time thinking about your parents and what they meant to you, how hard they worked, how they wanted to make a difference in your life. And often you, you don't express the gratitude while they're still with us. And right. I'm very thoughtful about what my mother did for me, and I, I suppose I wish I would have done a better job of telling her that. Yeah. Often we get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, right? And we don't tell the people that are closest to us yep. what we really think. That's so. correct. Yeah. But, you know, not an easy job in those days to raise a child and be the income earner right. as well, right? Yep. That's commendable, too. Yeah. I think that's probably where you get your huge respect for women in leadership, too. Well, she worked very hard to make life good for us, mm -hmm. and I'm sure sacrificed a lot for me. Yeah. Very grateful. Yeah. Um, Think about her every day. Oh, absolutely. Your wife, Jackie, and you have been together a long, long time. Two kids. Eight, three. Three kids, eight grandkids, right. right? We've been married 58 years. 58 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. You, you either are really in love or you don't like to quit things, Jim. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> We're really in love, and um, certainly probably the best thing that ever happened to me was yeah. we had a blind date at IU, and that was when I was beginning of my sophomore year. She was a couple of years ahead of me at IU, and we've been together ever since. Wow. Great. Yeah. And we have three kids. They all went to IU. They all married IU spouses. We have eight grandchildren. Four have now graduated from college. Wow. Only one from IU. We, <laughs> we have another granddaughter at IU now, and we have a granddaughter at Butler. And then we have a junior in high school at Brebuff. Right. And a seventh grader. He's 12. Incredible golfer. Wow. But Tim, our oldest son, his three girls went to uh, Belmont, Wheaton, and Miami. Wow. And the oldest is a singer-songwriter, Christian music. Awesome. In Nashville. Exciting stuff. Second is a youth pastor at a church in Long Beach, California. And the third is in the advertising business in Dallas. Awesome. Proud of them. Yeah, absolutely. You're reproducing a lot of faith-based <laughs> Leaders there, too, aren't you? <laughs> the fourth, the first to graduate from IU is in the sales and advertising business in Chicago. 
and he just graduated this year. So we're we're following him him daily. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It goes by really quick, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, the little ones, you got any more that you'll think you'll get to go to Indiana? I know that's been a project for you. Well, I, I hope <laughs> that the two boys that are still in one in a junior and one in the seventh grade, I hope both of them will go to IU. The junior, both good students. Um, he's on the football team at Burbuff, center on the team now. And as I said, the 12-year-old is a phenomenal golfer. <laughs> so we'll see where all that leads. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, Jim, I've always really found it quite commendable the depth that you go into to make this a great city and to make sure that all of our people are having the best experiences possible. You've been involved in Boy Scouts, Wheeler Mission, Gleaners. You were in charge of the Lilly Foundation for many years. What is it that you're paying attention to today? What, what takes up most of your mental space? Well, I'm 80 years old, and I find myself asking the question, what should you be doing at, at age 80? Certainly different than when you were 25, 45, or 55. You still have the same interest and drive and passion to make things better and, and to, to help things grow and be built. But I think the best thing you can do now is to be thoughtful, share your experience with young people coming along to be as helpful and encouraging and offering a boost to those who have responsibilities and opportunities now. I'm still uh, with Pacer Sports and Entertainment. We have uh, the most remarkable owner in all of professional sports in Herb Simon. He bought the Pacers with his brother Mel for all the right reasons. They loved this community. They felt gratitude to the community and have every day wanted to do things that were helpful and move things ahead. Right. But they've assembled a remarkable team of, of people from sort of our our president, Rick Fusen, who's mm -hmm. been with the company 40 years. Right. Brilliant. Uh, his passion for the city and his attention to detail and his creativity. Now, this is on the business side right. of, of the company, not the basketball side. I have a brilliant lady by the name of Mel Raines, mm -hmm. who's president of operations and a equally bright guy, uh, president of, we call it revenue, I guess, Todd Taylor. But they have been successful. And much of the credit for this goes to Donna Wilkinson, who has been our HR senior VP, Duke undergrad, Vanderbilt MBA. She's done a brilliant job of recruiting people who see the big picture. Right. I always say see their opportunities in their largest context to people who want to win basketball games and give great basketball to our fans and our city and our state, but also see, understand that the big picture is that we're building a community, building a entity that brings people together, that reduces adversarial relationships, that inspires kids, 
if our athletes and our coaches do their jobs well, right, they really uplift, encourage, inspire young people, mm-hmm. boys and girls both. They set the standard for other coaches, and coaches right. are among the most important people in a young person's life. They're teachers, they're youth workers, and they love their sport. And oftentimes, a young person will spend more time with his or her coach than anyone else spends with them. So I see the opportunity, and I think our HR people and, and our senior staff have done a really good job of exemplifying or, or, or being the model for seeing your opportunity in its largest context. Right. And our opportunity is bringing people together, reducing adversarial relationships, black, white, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat. You want the Pacers and the Colts and the Fever and the Indians to do well. That's a good point. It, yeah. it, it builds community. And there'll be a story in every paper in the world the next morning after we have a game, and it enhances our city's reputation. Well, just what happened in March Madness in 2021, you know, the work that you and your cohorts have done to build this as a sports city, if that hadn't happened, we'd have never had that opportunity Um, to host the tournament. 2021 was truly among the most extraordinary things that any city ever produced. Mm -hmm. I had very little to do with it. Right. But the Indiana Sports Corporation and the organizing committee, which is a part of the Sports Corporation, given COVID, there was great concern, consternation, uncertainty, what would happen to the men's Final Four. And it was ultimately decided that every one of the 67 games would be played in Indianapolis or within a few miles of Indianapolis. So the entire tournament in the middle of COVID was held here. Right. Televised every game. And the way our community rallied to wash clothes, provide meals, uh, drive people, it was a consummate volunteer effort. But it was done by a community that had had enough experience to pull it together to know how to do it but actually did it superbly well Mm -hmm. and made an NCAA tournament possible that year. Yeah, it it would have been looked at as next to impossible to have the result that you did with that, that that they did with that. And you say you didn't do it, but the Colts, the Pacers, the Sports Corps, all those things are things you've had your hand in over the years. But just, you know, there there are lots of hands in the pot. And I've been fortunate really fortunate to work with, over the years, hundreds of people, but specifically 25, 30, 40 friends that had an enormous commitment to helping Indianapolis become a more caring, more respected, more successful city. And we loved our friendship and we loved our partnership mentality. We were uh, represented all the dualisms of the time, right? but what a gift it was to be able to focus on building a great university, building a, a, a great downtown, building a tremendous cultural life. The same can be said for sports and all the time with a enormous commitment to the downtown, to the university and, and to young people. Right. 
Yeah, it's a it's a remarkable remarkable city and sports yeah. culture for sure, and and several other parts of that too. Being able to host the Super Bowl a few years ago was kind of a precursor to know we could do March Madness because mm-hmm. we could pull off that type of an event. We pull off the um, greatest spectacle in racing every year. Every right? year. <laughs> Well, and, and of course, we did the sports festival. Right. We did the Pan American Games, 40,000 mm-hmm. volunteers, an event almost as big as the Olympic Games. Right. And for a small city, which we are in the largest context, I suppose the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, well over 100 years old now, gave us confidence that we could at least put our toe on the water and, and begin to think about trying to do things of this magnitude. I mean, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, owned by an incredible family, the Holman family, loved the sport, loved the city, loved the state, were unselfish, great humility. And then we had the good fortune to have Roger Penske buy the Enterprise, and he, he bought the Enterprise for the same reason. He loved the city. But he loved the sport, and he knew this was the single most important facility, race, competition in all of automobile racing. Mm-hmm. And it is the single largest sporting event in the world. Mm-hmm. And we have it every year. Right. It lasts almost a month. Roger has now put additional races in place. The place never looked better. But... There's a partnership mentality with the state, with the city, with the 500 Festival, with all the racing teams, with the brilliant leadership of of Mark Miles and Allison Melanchthon, Doug Bowles, and and of course, Roger Penske himself is the most attentive to detail and doing things right for all the right reasons. So it does set the bar pretty high for everything else that has followed in our city. But when we had the Pan American Games, the Speedway, the Holman family said, hey, once you have the opening ceremony out here, we'll give you our facility and it'll be a great place where you can have a huge crowd. We want to be a part of that. Right. And that's the spirit that, that causes greatness to occur. Right. I heard that Roger Penske on the year when they were going to let people come back in during COVID but they were going to test everybody that was coming into the race. They were going to give them the COVID test. He personally took 18 different COVID tests to figure out what the customer experience was because he, he wanted to understand what we were going to ask every single attendee to do. Yeah. It's remarkable servant leadership, in my opinion. A remarkably good man, honorable, decent, smart as a whip, and will always do things right. Right. When you think of the people and the relationships that you've cultivated over the years, how do you think of relationships, the value of relationship, how to make a meaningful relationship with someone? I guess I'm asking you, how do you be friends? But but you're just known as such a connector of people and someone who cultivates great relationships. So it's, mm. what's your process look like? Maybe process is not the right word or habits might be the better, mm-hmm. the better choice. Well, I, you know, I've been very fortunate. I Went to Indiana University and had four great years there. Married a great lady. I've had great family friends. 
I worked for a remarkable guy by the name of Dick Luger, who felt that you could find common ground with anyone if you made an effort that it would be hard to find somebody if you worked at it, you couldn't get along with. And Mm -hmm. so then I I have to say at IU, and then for many years, I had the chance to know Herman Wells and, and to watch him build friendships, both for himself, but for the university and ultimately for the state and for all the things he cared about it. So, you know, I, I'm 80, and if you reach out and are committed to developing relationships with all sorts of people, often people who come from very different backgrounds from which you came, if you make some good friends and some acquaintances and some partners when you're 21 and you make an effort to stay in touch, nurture those relationships, repeat it when you're 22 and continue to repeat it every year until you're 80, you you end up knowing a heck of a lot of people and it becomes an enormous blessing in your life and real change in the world, I think, only takes place when people know each other and have some degree of trust. And if you start off working on simple things, small things, and you you make progress and you get acquainted and you begin to trust and like and enjoy, and that strengthens every year. By the time you're in your middle 40s, you've got a cadre of folks you can really, number one, you enjoy <laughs> doing things together and you know each other well enough and you, you begin to have a great deal of trust and there's no substitute. Yeah. I think the other thing I see you do is you never start the relationship to get something. Mm-hmm. You start a relationship to find out how you can help someone. Yeah. And that I think can be a barrier for a lot of people to get authentic relationships because they want a relationship with someone so that they can get. And until you find out how you can serve, it's hard to receive, you know? Well, I think I often said to young people, you ought to spend 20 or 25 percent of your time just building relationships and often for no other purpose than enjoyment. Right. And to have friends and to have associates that you like to do things together, that you enjoy being with. And often those relationships are focused on common interest and people care about building a great city. People care about not wanting a single child to be hungry. People share their faith. They enjoy their families. Some of our best friends have come through common things our kids were doing. They were in Cub Scouts together or a little league baseball and the parents get uh, friendly and the kids become friendly and then the grandkids become friendly. It's really not very complicated and it's wonderful. I, I wouldn't trade my friends. In our house, we say, thank God for faith, family, friends, community, and vocation. And I believe that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Your relationships have kind of helped create a path for you over the years into different experiences. But as a Hoosier in Indianapolis, you've had some great experiences here. And then you get dropped into 
the United Nations World Hunger Program and moved to Rome for eight years, was it? Five. Five years to work on solving world hunger, right? What What was that like? What was that like? So President Bush had initially invited me to be the U.S. ambassador to the three U.N. Rome-based food agencies. And Jackie and I went through ambassador training for two weeks at the State Department in 2002. And at the end of the two-week experience, which you're required to do to be confirmed as a U.S. ambassador, I was sort of summoned to the seventh floor of the State Department and said, Jim, would you like to be nominated by the United States to lead the United Nations World Food Program, which was one of the three food-based agencies I was going to be the ambassador to. So I I was sort of overwhelmed, uh, amazed. In fact, probably nothing in my life had prepared me to deal with uh, the hunger issue. Now, as, as soon as I say that, to be a person that has huge responsibilities dealing with world hunger, with almost a billion people hungry in the world, feeding people in 120 countries, especially a commitment to women and children, incredible logistical operation, an incredible fundraising responsibility, and trying to understand the difficulty and challenges of the issues involved. So, I mean, it was a brand new world for me. Right. Now, I'd had a responsibility managing large numbers of people and large budgets. I'd had fundraising responsibilities. And I had had a wonderful tutor in Dick Luger who cared deeply about the problems of, of young people who were vulnerable and at risk. I had the same kind of experience with a great man by the name of Dick Christine, who I worked with at the Lilly Endowment, and then had been on the periphery of humanitarian issues in a very small way. The World Food Program, 18,000 employees, multi-billion dollar budget, offices in 100 plus countries. At the same time, the Secretary General Kofi Annan, this magnificent human being from Ghana, such a great person. A humble, smart, but honorable, asked me to be the Secretary General Special Envoy for seven countries in Southern Africa, Lesotho, Swaziland, Mozambique, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Namibia. Wow. And that was a time when the HIV pandemic was oh. just enormous, that there was an incredible drought right. across Southern Africa. and. These were places that were struggling in many respects from the beginning. So to, I did that as well as helping to run the United Nations World Food Program. But there were thousands of people, some international servants, some locally based, who were so passionate. There are few things in the world that people agree on like they agree on the notion that no child should be hungry. Right. So you had this well-prepared, passionate, driven, smart, 
group of folks who were there to get the work done. And my job was to encourage them, to support them, to see that they were treated fairly, that they had good benefits, that they had the support of governments at the highest level in the countries where they were working. So I had some modest experience dealing with issues like that. Right. But at the end of the day, thank God for an extraordinary team of people who cared. And, you know, I was always so proud to be an American. The United States, the most generous country in the world in terms of helping to address the world's humanitarian agenda. And other countries would maybe be helpful and do small parts or some significant parts for a whole range of panorama of reasons. The United States, by and large, always provided help because they felt the moral imperative and that we simply didn't want, especially children and especially women, but anyone to suffer, to be hungry. And our our country, a high degree of nobility, of integrity, of and we had enormous technical resources. Um, The U.S. land-grant college system, the county extension system, agricultural research in our country leads the world. Mm -hmm. And we were willing to share that, still are, uh, and almost give it away just to help that little girl in Malawi at age five not starve. Right. And you made good impact on that, right? Well, we we did make, you know, we sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's like going to the children's hospital and saying, isn't it so sad that all these kids are so sick? But then you say, well, my goodness, isn't it so wonderful that we have great children's hospitals like Riley or Peyton Manning to take care of kids that are, are sick? So you sort of are driven to say we ought to be able to eliminate child hunger. There should be no hungry child in the world, but you can make progress and do it better. My my motto was always, let's do more, let's do it better, and let's do it together. Oh, nice. I love that. Love that. So after the World Hunger Program, you came back, and that's when you went to work at Pacers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I did it for five years. Yeah. I could have done a second term. I had traveled almost full time. We love living in Rome, but we are Hoosiers, and we had kids at home, grandkids at home. My oldest son had lived in in Hong Kong and London during part of the time I was in that position. So when I would head off for two weeks, Jackie would either come home or go to London with the three granddaughters there. But I was exhausted after five right. years for all sorts of reasons. So I came home, and I had helped Herb and Mel Simon acquire the Pacers with Ted Bohm and Dave Frick and others. We had worked with Herb and and Mel to get that done. And Herb said, Jim, well, why don't you come help us out a little bit? (laughs) And uh, we'd had that tough time in, in Detroit. Yeah. And Herb and Mel loved the sport, loved the city wanted it to be done right. Indiana people love basketball and wanted it to be played right. Right. So I said, why would I do this? And I concluded that 
everything that I care about, the well-being of vulnerable children, how people get along, reducing adversarial relationships, the reputation and the quality of life in my city, my state, building a great downtown. The downtown's the most important part of any city. It's the one neighborhood that belongs to everyone who who lives in that community. That everything I cared about, I could do working with the Pacers and the Fever. And so I've, I've been there since 2007, 16 years now. And we had a great team, a great basketball team, good coaches, great players. But I was on the business side, the community side. And Herb Simon and his family, Mel, both sets of kids of, of both guys cared deeply about the community and cared about how to use this opportunity to make things better for Indianapolis. So it's been a great partnership. That's lovely. Certainly the team has done a good job in anchoring our city sports map there, but it's not just sports that you do at the Pacers, is it? You, the facility has entertainment and concerts and, Mm -hmm. and all those things coming in. Plus you are very civic minded with the use of the facilities there too. Well, once again, it's not me and I'm not unduly humble, but it's the the tone, the Simon set for the enterprise. They, they always wanted the community to feel like the teams belong to them. Mm -hmm. Certainly the building belongs to the community. It's the busiest building in the state of Indiana 550 events a year, over 2 million visitors, but it's available for funerals of public safety people who are killed in the line of duty. We've had high-profile celebrations of life of great Hoosiers who needed a large place to celebrate their life. We do commencements, huge number of fundraisers. A lot of nonprofit use. Um, Um, My friend Jennifer Browning-Holmes said that you helped her use the facility to get the Indianapolis Women's Leadership Conference going. Sure. And having that facility was there what really helped them to launch into really significant numbers. Good. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, soon we'll have 65,000 of the brightest young people in America coming to Indianapolis for a week or 10 days for the FFA convention. Great group. You could not put a value on having that group of people plus the entire leadership of agribusiness from across the world in your city for a a week and a half. For many years running, right? For many years running. And it takes place at the convention center, at hotels, and at the Gaybridge Fieldhouse. Yeah. I always love FFA and 4-H. You know, I was a 4-H'er, but if someone comes across my desk for a job, and they've got 4-H or FFA on their resume, I'm pretty good with that person. Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're well, usually I, hard workers. Yeah. I would add if you if they were a member of 4-H, FFA, and an Eagle Scout. Oh, there you go, Boy yeah, Scout. Right. Yeah, I, you have done some amazing things to support scouting. Were you a scout when you were a child? Yes. Scouting was really important to me. I belonged to Troop 8, Pac-8, Explorer Post 8 in Terre Haute, Indiana. Worked at scout camp in the summer, worked at one of the national jamborees in Colorado Springs, went to Philmont in New Mexico. I learned a lot in scouting. 
I think when you think of values and how, how does a person form their values, mm -hmm. I think you, you probably start with the Ten Commandments and the basic teachings of the gospel. But then I, if you're a Rotarian, the, the four-way test and the scout law, scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverend. Those are pretty good ways of figuring out what you stand for. They are indeed, yeah. I was a Girl Scout too. That was Girl Scouts is how I knew I was going to be a salesperson at some point, was from selling those cookies, you know? <laughs> well, well, in Boy Scouts, we sold popcorn. Right. And I, I think I probably won a bicycle one year for <laughs> selling popcorn as a Boy Scout. Well, we both have stories that go yeah. back to selling as, yeah. so, as Scouts. That's great. <laughs> So one of the things that we discuss in my book, Here We Grow, is the importance of transformation. And we define transformation as a noticeable change in, in form or, or a substance. And so then we look at transformational leadership as helping people go from here to there to make that transformation. You are and you have been around a lot of transformational leaders over the course of time. Who do you see in our city or our state that stands out to you as a transformational leader? There are many. Yeah. At the top of my list, I would probably have Herman Wells, mm -hmm. Father Ted Hesburgh, right. Dick Luger, uh, our great mayor, Eli Lilly, Dennis Bland. Right. Those would be five to, to start off with. Mm -hmm. I look at Ardeth Burkhart. Right. This lady, we were the largest city in the United States that didn't have a public broadcasting station. And she went to work with a group of ladies. They called themselves Ardith's Army. Right. And they got Channel 20 put in place. And, right. And today it's one of the best public broadcasting stations in the country. Father Hesburgh, this remarkable man, a priest first, but built a great Catholic university. Right. I asked him once, I said, Father, do you consider yourself to be a Hoosier? He said, well, I've lived here 75 years. I think I qualify. <laughs> Herman, and that's Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame. Okay. He was a yeah. great person mm -hmm. and a good person. Herman Wells from Little Jamestown, Indiana, went to Indiana University as a student, became dean of the business school became president of the university on an interim basis, and did not ever have an earned doctorate degree. Mm. But this man was driven because he wanted the best for the young people in the state of Indiana. Right. And, you know, he built the auditorium so the Metropolitan Opera could come to Indiana the first time they'd ever performed outside of New York. He used to say, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And he was a man of deep faith, a humble man, a kind man, but brilliant. Right. So I would put Mr. Lilly in the same category. They were good friends, by the way. Oh. And Herman Wells and Ted Hesburgh were good friends. Mm -hmm. Mr. Lilly said, you know, take what's been given to you and make it better. And Mr. Lilly was a perfect gentleman and so focused on kindness and gratitude, and a man of deep faith. And um, generosity. And generosity. 
But his generosity came from his faith. He was not selfish. He wanted to share what he and his brother and his father had. They, they created the Lilly Endowment in 1937 to share what they had earned. And they were focused on opportunities for young people, building a great community, private college education, opportunities for minorities. Their work in religion was focused on strengthening all faiths. It was not evangelical or proselytizing, but it wanted to support the development of clergy, of lay people, very focused on character, which is an extension of faith. A very wise thing that they do is they fund pastors to go on a sabbatical to give them a good rest break, right? They'll fund a plan to send a pastor on a sabbatical to recover, rejuvenate, and get focused on what God has for them next. Yes, I I mean, they understood effective leadership, and they were focused on teachers, focused on pastors, focused on youth workers. They wanted life to be better for Hoosiers. And one of the great things about the endowment is it, you know, it's off and on, it's been the largest foundation in the world, mm-hmm. and always among the top, but it stayed pretty loyal to what the founders had in mind. Right. And, and many foundations haven't been able to have that discipline. Yeah. There was an article in the IBJ just in the last couple of weeks about most people don't understand how much Lilly does for the endowment, well, and Lilly corporate, of course, too but how much they do for the city in that yeah, giving. Yeah, you know, no it's, question. It's, it's quite remarkable. But the success of Lilly Corporate makes the success of the endowment possible. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And they're a great company and great corporate citizen here in our city. We'll too. always do the right thing. Absolute integrity. Yeah. Good people. Right. What are you excited about in the coming season with the Pacers? You know, I'm from Milan, Indiana. Went to IU, started in 1981 when we won the national championship. I'm all about the basketball. So what are you excited yeah. about in the coming season with the Pacers? Well, I'm excited. We have Tyrese Halliburton. We traded for last year. Kevin Pritchard and his team really had a great trade with, with Sacramento that brought a couple of really fine players to us. We lost some fine players, but Tyrese Halliburton has become a real on-the-floor leader of our team. I'm proud of him and that he's on the national team competing for the world championship right now in Manila, the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And I'm hopeful that that will lead to his being on the Olympic team next year. Awesome. But we've had good drafts. We we got a tremendous young man from the University of Houston. We got a good shooter from Belmont. We've had a couple of more trades. We would have made the playoffs last year with the exception that Tyrese Halliburton was injured for 10 or 11 games, and we lost nine of those games, and that took us out of the playoffs. But this team has had a good time together, and they'll add some strong talent. It's going to be good. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have one of the great coaches in Rick Carlisle and a great management team in basketball. Right. Our Fever are playing much better this year than last year. Yeah. We We had a heck of a draft this year, too. We had a great draft. We got the number one pick from South Carolina. 
great lady, a great basketball player and an academic All-American. And then we drafted number seven in the draft, Grace Berger, who was the, the, the spark plug and the passion of the IU women's team yeah. that was so good last yeah, year. Yeah, I figured you'd be happy about that. Very happy. <laughs> Doesn't take much to make me happy. All good. But, yeah. but you know, with the building now in wonderful condition, mm-hmm. we've had this major renovation. We have the new Bicentennial Unity Plaza on the north side of the building, which celebrates the 200th anniversary of our city. It celebrates the notion of unity, a place for everyone to come together. There's some magnificent sculpture. There's a beautiful sphere, 23 plus feet in diameter, which is the same distance for the three-point shot in the NBA, Ah. but a place for kids to play basketball. And in the wintertime, it will be converted to an ice rink, nicer and bigger than Rockefeller Center. Oh, wow. On the Steak and Shake building is a magnificent mural of 43 significant citizens of Indianapolis over the last 200 years. And then in the near distance is that wonderful picture painting on a mural once again of Eva Kor, the refugee from Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. who she's now passed, but from Terre Haute. And she spent her life talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So this beautiful building, this new plaza, the history of our city, and then to have her overlooking it all. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, Love and forgiveness are the two things that Holocaust survivors will talk about, being important to be able to survive and thrive after that. Right. And you can't do it without love. Right. And it's, but boy, it it must be tough. Um, I once had a, I had several good visits with Nelson Mandela, a remarkable man, sort of like a West Point cadet, six foot six, ramrod straight. Wow. My wife and I had been to Robben Island one of the days before where he had spent 28 years in prison. And I said to him, sir, I can't imagine that you aren't the angriest, maddest person in the world. And he said, you know, Jim, it was never about being angry, never about being mad. It was only about fairness for my people. Pretty powerful stuff. Very powerful stuff. Spoken from one great man to another, in my opinion. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Spoken from a truly great man to somebody who was privileged to listen. Yeah. Jim, you're you're 80 years old. Let me tell you what the rest of your life needs to look like, you know. I believe in God and he's got it. I believe he gave me a plan for you. There's so much up here in your mind about healing and bringing groups together and leading in our city. You got to get what's stored up in there out into other people so that we know how to carry the ball forward. Mm -hmm. That's your legacy. Well, you're very kind. I do have passion for the well-being of vulnerable Hungry, sad, lonely children. Right. No child should be left behind. Right. No child should be hungry. And given the right support and a caring adult in a child's life and good nutrition, the World Health Organization would tell you that hunger 
is the single greatest health issue in the world. Right. But you feed that little girl age five and make it possible for her to go to school. And even if she's only in school for a few years, everything about her life changes for the better. God loves us all the same. He he doesn't love the well-to-do child any more, any less than he loves the child that's struggling and needs help. Right. And the Bible doesn't talk about geographical limitations. It talks about the community and uh, kids at large. So I believe that the best reputation a city can have is to be able to put its hand up and say, we do not have a single hungry child. Right. And if you take care of all of the tough issues related to child growing up, I think by and large, everything will, else will fall in place. Right. Another great Indianapolis leader of transformation, Jerry Throgmorton, before he passed, he and I were speaking at Shepherd Community Center in a fundraiser. So it's he and I on a panel being interviewed. And he said, the Lord commanded us to take care of the poor, to feed the poor and take care of the hungry, to give shelter. It's not a suggestion. It's not part of a 12-point plan. It is a commandment to care for those that are less fortunate. And that was his reason of why he was giving, you know. so well, He was a great man, and we yeah. lost him far too soon. Right. And he had a great heart. And he's a very smart man as mm-hmm. well, a great business leader. But his faith guided him. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Shepherd Community Center, Jay Hyde, could be on my list of the most influential, effective people. Uh, This man of deep, deep faith, and he lives it every day. Right. You know, sometimes people get frustrated about business people, business owners, wealth, the separation of wealth and stuff. But if you really look, and you don't have to look very deep, but if you make an attempt to look at a generosity from corporate leaders and businesses, Indiana has some incredible stories in it. Yes, we do. You know, what the Cook family has done in Southern Indiana, I'm on my way in a month or so to spend some time at West Baden and the generosity that they've exhibited there and the whole way that they look at giving is just very impressive. And there's just tons of companies in this state that are doing those types of things. They're healing the world with their wealth is what they're focused on. And providing opportunities. There's no substitute for good economic opportunities for people to have the ability to take care of their families and to have a decent income and a decent wage so that they can balance uh, all of the way they use their time. I admire the way the, the Lilly family led the company. You know, they always closed down between Christmas and New Year's. They always closed it early at the end of the day so people could have time with their family. Erwin mm-hmm. Miller, the Cummins people, the people at One America. The Hillenbrands uh, in Batesville. The Hillenbrands is incredible. Yeah. You know, there's just lots of great banks and insurance companies and manufacturing operations. You look at Sonny Beck and the Beck Seed Company right. or Brian Reichart at Red Gold. Josh um, Wildman at the Wildman Group. You know, they're, they're giving 20% of their profit away to help these types of causes. You know, There was a time when Indianapolis had 120 companies giving between 2 and 5% of pre-tax profits for charitable, religious, 
civic, literary, mm-hmm. community purposes. My friend P.E. McAllister. Oh, it was another one. Yep. A man of great faith, a great faith. If you came to see P.E. McAllister and ask for his help, and you ask him to help something that he didn't have a great interest in, but he saw your passion and your enthusiasm and your commitment, he would help. Right. (laughs) And the list goes on. Yeah. A couple other folks that are friends of yours that I went down a rabbit. I had a sick day yesterday and I had just had the TV play and I wanted to listen to music. And I got on a string of the Gaithers, Bill and Gloria Gaither up in Anderson, Indiana, and listened to their music for 12 hours yesterday. But what an impact they've had on on Christian music over the years, too. Well, Bill and Gloria Gaither are national treasures. Oh, yeah. They've written a thousand hymns. You sing them in your churches all the time. Sure. One of the great stories of Bill Gaither he had some extra time on a Friday afternoon in Memphis, and he went out to Elvis's home in Memphis, Graceland, and he sort of just stood next to a, a tour group that had a docent taking them through, and the docent said, now this is the first Grammy that Elvis won, received for singing the song, He Touched Me, and Bill Gaither never said a word. But he wrote it. He and his that's wife, right. Gloria, did, wrote yeah. it. I mean, that's sort of the epitome of, of Hoosier life. <laughs> Jackie and I went up last week to spend a day with Bill and Gloria. And we went over to Anderson and spent a couple hours with Carl and Betty Erskine. Mm-hmm. And Carl, of course, the great, great pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, now in his 90s, they've been married over 70 years a man of enormous faith, a leader of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, the most humble, fine, glorious couple you could imagine. And they could have lived anywhere in the world as Bill and Gloria could, but they've, I love it, they've chosen to be Hoosiers and live their whole lives in Madison County. And go to the Pacers games. And go to the Pacers games. (laughs) Carl Erskine plays the harmonica. And he has often played this national anthem at the L.A. Dodgers, uh, but then come back and play it at the Pacer game. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Jim, we could talk about these things all day long. I so appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for everything you're doing for our city and our people. And modeling the way for leaders to be able to follow you. So thank you. Well, I I don't know that I model it, but I search for it. And I I have to say, Marsha, I I admire you so much for your writing, for your, your heartfelt commitment to doing things right and to bringing the best out in others. And the way your book has sort of shown the path and, Given people encouragement to, if they have a roadblock or some difficult days, to know that a little creativity and a little faith and a little love from the Lord will sort of give you a new path to once again have a chance to hit the ball out of the park. Amen to that. <laughs> and I feel the same, by the way, about your colleague, David Lindsay. Oh, yeah. 
What a great man. I, it breaks my heart that he doesn't live here full time. Right, right. But all good. Thank yeah. you for this this gift. My pleasure. Have a great day, and we'll package this up and send it over to you to give a listen to. Good deal. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Here We Grow. This show is proudly brought to you by Valve and Meter Performance Marketing. Be sure to check out the show notes for exclusive content that will help you become a transformational leader. For more, visit mathbeforemarketing.com slash podcast. 